I remember in 1989 showing up at Pratt & Whitney in Florida to work on the um, the, the Department of Defense contract for uh, the F-22 Raptor. And, and so everybody there was basically male, right? And and I, I think I was one of, uh, one of two female engineers in my group of 100. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. From a family farm in rural Georgia, Deb Kilpatrick's passion for science and technology took her to Georgia Tech and then Silicon Valley, where she helped grow a medical device company and a molecular diagnostics company before assuming her current and most ambitious role, CEO of Evidation Health. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Sunin. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's episode is brought to you by DNA Nexus the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. All right. So, Lisa, there's always so much discussion about what are the qualities that make someone an entrepreneur. So I guess you could start with sort of the classic view, you know, a passion for an idea, tolerance for risk, that whole sort of thing. But then in 2015, there was this really interesting article in, in courts of all places that said, actually, what entrepreneurs really seem to have in common are rich parents, which apparently <laughs> confers a number of advantages, including cash to start a business, higher tolerance for financial risk, that sort of thing. But in the course of doing this podcast, Lisa, over all these episodes. We've certainly met a number of guests, including our very first guest, Lisa Mackey, as well as our current guest, who were of conspicuously modest means and perhaps were even driven by this to be successful. How do you see the balance of comfort and need in making someone a successful entrepreneur? Well, that's such an interesting question, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I buy this whole rich parents thing. It feels like a spurious correlation to me because I have to believe that Fake news. Yeah, it, ego <laughs> and uh, and a obsessive compulsive disorder are probably the the the, the greater uh, qualities of of uh, uh, you know driving entrepreneurship and and just a uh, uh, an inability to say no to yourself when you have a, what you believe is a good idea. But do you think there's a component where um, uh, you know everyone always talks about you know a key thing is being able to fail and get up and fail and get up. But if but if you yeah resilience. You know, res- Resilience. There's but, a word but, for it. But right. But also, how if you you can imagine that where where people have kind of more of a safety net, more of a well, try this and here's some money to get started, and if it doesn't work out, that folks, well, let's say with these other right qualities who who come from a greater amount of money, might be more likely to actually go and take that risk. Whereas if you you know you, it might be harder for other people. I mean, I can see where the court's article is coming from. Yeah, I mean, I could, it, it makes logical sense. I just don't know if it makes reality sense. I I, I don't know. That's a, that's an interesting question. Maybe maybe some of our viewers and they when they're uh, viewers viewers well our listeners or our viewers. If they, <laughs> they're, uh, what do you think, Jason? <laughs> <laughs> we have one viewer in here. <laughs> a particularly good imagination. <laughs> we'll comment uh, and send us some notes about this, but. Uh, you know, when they're when they're reviewing us on iTunes, they can comment accordingly. <laughs> That's right. Please, uh, uh, this banter aside, please uh, do remember to review or rate us on iTunes. It really helps. All right. So let's 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 get to the main business here. So, Deb, your story is absolutely fascinating. You grew up, as uh, we noted at the top, in rural Georgia, the daughter of a football coach and a teacher. You've described it as very, and I'm quoting here, Friday Night Lights. Could you tell us about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So my, um, I grew up in a town of of two thousand people. There was about I think ten thousand people in the county, right dead smack in the middle of Georgia. And my father was the high school football coach. And this is one of those counties where there was only one high school in the county. So 
you know, my father was very Friday night lightsish and my life was very Friday night lightsish and that we were the big game in town, like literally on Friday night, that's what everybody in the town did. And there was certainly a, a culture of the community that revolved around whether you won or lost on Friday night. And, and, I, and you know, it's interesting, I've often thought as I've, as I've gotten further in my career and sort of look back on how I grew up and sort of this willingness to start all over again every Monday, right, and play a new game and, huh. and do everything that you can do to win and then start all over and kind of do it again. And, you know, this notion of sort of building teams from people with very disparate backgrounds and, you know, trying to really build people's strengths and bring everybody toward a common goal is, is such drill, so drilled into my mind. Um, and I think it came directly from, from that. I think it came directly from that experience of, of kind of watching my dad uh, go through that, you know, over the 30-year uh, course of his career in those, in those towns. So do you use a lot of football analogies in your work? <laughs> I, I do. In fact, I, I, in fact, years ago, um, uh, Natalie Schlafman, who, Lisa, you probably know, uh, was the head of marketing at Cardio DX. And she turned to me once in a staff meeting and she just said, I don't mean to be rude, but no one knows what calling an audible means. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That just means you got a lot of women at the firm, I bet. (laughs) Well, uh, in addition to uh, the, um, this, it sounds like this uh, resilience training um, uh, from, from the weekly football, it sounds like um, uh, you obviously had a real passion and really enjoyed math and science. And uh, you wound up at a Georgia tech. I think we might even have the fight song queued up. Python-ish, if you ask me. <laughs> I imagine this is all pretty familiar to you, right? It is, yes. And one of the things that, um, you know, you know there, there's been a number of, of points in time in my life where I've really, truly sort of been at the right place at the right time and sort of willing to do the right thing or, or the thing that, 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 that opened the door for me. And I just happened to grow up in Georgia at a time when there was a pro- very a very progressive view in the in the state government about the lottery, and we voted the lottery in, or my parents and their their compadres voted the lottery in in the, in the 1980s. And the stipulation was that all of the profits from the lottery would be fun- would be used to fund um, students who wanted to stay in state and go to the, the university system of Georgia, which included Georgia Tech, it included the University of Georgia, it included Georgia State, and on all the other parts of the university system. And, and you would go tuition-free as long as the, you met certain academic criteria. So I was very, very lucky that this happened, and the first class of people to be able to do this was my class as a freshman in 1985 at Georgia Tech. And so, wow. you know, I was, um, it's, it's sort of one of those things that just kind of happened, because, you know, my, my dad was a high school football coach, I don't, I don't know how I would how we would have afforded to send me, you know, tuition free if I didn't get a scholarship, right? Um, and so it was something that was extremely important to me at the time. And, and uh, I sort of always viewed it as, wow, I'm really glad I was born the year that I was and graduated high school the year that I did. I have to believe that, um, that at that time, everybody you went to school with knew what calling an audible meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there was yeah. not a big line for the ladies room, if you know what I mean. <laughs> No, not not at all, not at all. The, the the I remember the the day that I showed up on Georgia Tech campus for my for my first day of classes, and um, I had read that the ratio across campus was you know about eight to one, but the ratio in the engineering school 
was really double digits to one. And so I spent the most many, many, many classes uh, across many years of, of school at Georgia Tech between my undergrad, master's, and PhD as, as literally the only girl in the room. <laughs> and so I got very, very comfortable um, being different. And I, I think that that has uh, been an important part of my mindset and my training um, for sort of surviving Silicon Valley is, you know, turning differences into strengths is, is something that I learned along the way is a real asset. Definitely so. And so you uh, you stayed at, at Georgia Tech for a while, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I did my undergrad, graduated in 1989. Um, if you were an engineering uh, major in the, in the 1980s, anywhere in the U.S. at the big engineering schools, you, you pretty much had all of the Department of Defense contractors beating down your door, right, because it was the Cold War. Uh, and so I went and worked in the aerospace industry for two years uh, on the F-22 Raptor program and then decided that I wanted to go back to grad school. And so then I came back to Georgia Tech in 1991 for my master's and Ph.D. and focused in mechanical engineering and bioengineering. But uh, really that experience in the aerospace industry was quite uh, quite fundamental and material to the way that I thought about being an engineer. Badass, I think, is the word you're looking for. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> Wow. Well, that's crazy. Hey, have you seen this movie, Hidden Figures, about the women engineers and computer scientists that help make the moonshot possible? Yeah, at NASA I actually, back in I the 60s? actually just saw it on Sunday uh, this this past weekend, mm-hmm. and I it's been a long time since I cried in a movie theater. I cried in a movie theater. Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? To the bathroom, sir. To the bathroom. To the damn bathroom. For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing there? There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you there here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a coffee from a pot none of you want to touch. So it was very, it was very moving to me to see him sort of knock down the sign of the colored women's bathroom and basically democratize NASA at, at the same time. The other scene that happens is she, um, the main character, does this analysis on these giant whiteboards, right, that they all had to do these giant mathematical uh, analyses on where they would climb the ladder and climb back down. And she's basically figured out the answer to a question they've all been struggling with. And they, she does it, nobody's watching her, and all of a sudden she's not there. And after she's gone, these mathematicians look and the engineers say, wow, who did this? And they realize it's her. And it's kind of from there, you just kind of like, well, okay, she proved herself in that moment. You know, it's just, it's just a whole movie. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was Lisa really, was just it was telling really me about it. She's saying, I have to go with my uh, daughters. And so uh, we're... Uh... I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I remember in 1989 showing up at Pratt & Whitney in Florida to work on the um, the, the Department of Defense contract for uh, the F-22 Raptor. And, and at the time, that division of Pratt & Whitney was also working on this, the, the turbo boosters for the space shuttle. And so everybody there was, you know, basically male, right? And and I, I think I was one of uh, one of two female engineers in my group of a hundred. So there were two of us in a, out of a hundred, and um, we were required to wear skirts. You weren't allowed to wear pants at all if you were female. 
I mean, this was in 1989, right? So we had to wear a skirt and you had to wear a hose and you had to wear, you know, open, no open-toed shoes. Um, and it was, you know, it, that sounds like something that would have happened in the 50s, but this was almost the 1990s, right? This was not that long ago. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking of, like the 50s with, with like the short, with the guys in the short sleeve white shirts and like, you know, the thin ties. <laughs> but um, Yeah, at least it, she didn't have to wear a pocket protector, you know? That was my <laughs> That was option. That was her choice. <laughs> Lisa was this close to working on the Raptor program too. So you, so you, you finished. So you finished up at Georgia Tech. As I understand it, you had a number of faculty offers, but nevertheless, you packed your bags and said, "I'm going to go to Silicon Valley." So what in the yeah, world were you thinking? Was, go west. It, yeah, <laughs> it was. A, it was a tough decision. And what had happened was it was the um, it was 1996, the summer of 1996, and. There was uh, something very special going on in Atlanta in the summer of 1996, which was the Olympics. And Georgia Tech campus was the Olympic Village. And my lab happened to be in the highest security zone of the Olympic Village. So I spent the summer virtually having all access to everything the athletes did, which was incredible. And it was a perverse incentive to not defend that quarter. Right? <laughs> and so I um, put off defending my thesis into December of that year. Um, and so over across the summer, my advisor had gone – uh, to Oxford on sabbatical. And before he left, we had talked about, you know, which postdoc are you going to take? Are you going to take, you know, I think it was MIT versus University of California, San Diego versus uh, University of Washington. And, and, and I think there was one at University of Rochester. And so there were all these different opportunities that were in discussion. And he's like, oh, I look forward to your decision. <laughs> so uh, he comes back, the Olympics are over. I'm getting ready to defend my thesis. I'm like, hey, guess what? I've decided to turn all of them down and I'm going to California. And you're like, surprise. <laughs> and talk about uh, hearing the proverbial pin drop in the room. Um, to say, to, to put it mildly, I did not have a huge amount of enthusiastic support for my faculty committee. Uh, that was still a time when, um, you know, if you got a PhD and, you know, they viewed you very much as their progeny and you were supposed to sort of carry on the legacy of their of their research and your own research and become a faculty. It's member. funny because I definitely, you know, in, in, in biological sciences in general, that's absolutely how it is. You hear about that in a lot of types of graduate school. I had always thought that the one area that was different were, were schools of engineering, um, where it, there, there was a sort of a, a much smoother interface and an appreciation for the value of industry. But maybe not if you get a PhD in engineering, I guess. Maybe it's just if you study it. Although, I tell you the truth, I, I'm surprised that it that um, that, that was the reaction. I, I always thought that there was a, it was a lot uh uh, a lot more integrated. Well, I think I think it, it is now, and I think it was very quickly after that point in time that it became more that way. But you know, this was 1996, um, which you know is now 20 years ago, 21 years ago. You know, so it's it's a lot has happened, a lot has changed, and you know, Georgia Tech uh, is the largest engineering school in the country, and it it gives out more engineering PhDs than any other school in the country, um, and so it is it is. Uh, even now, a really big deal and expectation that certain students uh, getting their doctorates from these from these you know, sort of tier one, very academic oriented engineering institutions are are very likely to become faculty members. But what has changed over the years is that um, as industry itself, and in particular medical devices and biotech. Uh, over the last 20 years have become so much more focused on fundamental research and translational research as opposed to just developing stuff. 
um, more PhDs have begun to flock to industry, and in fact, more industry PhDs um, have even gone back into academia. And so what has happened is you now have a very different mindset. But I would say I came out at a time when that was just beginning to change, and there weren't any people to point to and say, hey, I'm going to do that. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and so I was, I was doing something that was quite untested and quite different, um, but it was very quick to change. Um, so it wasn't such an aberration anymore. And in fact, the faculty attitude in general of PhDs going into industry rapidly changed. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, it was part because they wanted research collaborations with the people that were going into industry. So what did you write your thesis on, first of all? I have two questions. First that. So my PhD was, I think the title of it, now, now I'm really going back, uh, the, 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 the Mechanics of Heterogeneous Arteries and the implications for human atherosclerosis. And so what that means in real words <laughs> is I was using um, engineering principles and um, approaches to study multi-phase materials uh, and apply that to soft tissue and how soft tissue becomes diseased in the body. That makes sense in terms of how you got to California. So yeah. So tell us tell us the story, how you bridge from that thesis to uh, yeah, yeah. to your, your big trip west in the stagecoach. So, yeah, where I where I put all the I put all the dishes and and the grandmother's things and and headed west. Um, I I you know it was all about coming about at a time where um, device medical device companies, which is really what I was coming out here to do. I was very very focused on being a part of the medical device industry. Um, things were beginning to be put into the body for the purposes of delivering drugs, and these conceptual uh, combination products, which at the time they weren't quite called that yet, but they were about to be called that. Um, were becoming much more sophisticated, and particularly in cardiovascular applications with the, um, with the launch of, uh, of stent, bare metal stents, the notion that you needed to understand soft tissue and how soft tissue behaved as a mechanical material um, became really important, right? Because we needed to be able to understand not only how to keep things from failing and breaking in vivo, but you needed to understand how their things would behave in vivo so that you could understand how to get drugs off of them in a controlled way. And so my, my PhD suddenly became really, really relevant. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate at that. I ultimately, um, you know, by 1998, had been invited to join uh, Guidant Corporation and their vascular business in Santa Clara to begin looking at how can we bring in some of those, some of those mechanical and engineering and numerical approaches to study tissue device interaction um, based on what I had done in grad school. And so it was really, again, right place, right time, kind of right background. Um, and it was just, it was just a perfect place for me to be. And you had kind of a magical class of people there with you at the time. A lot of people who've gone on to be incredibly successful. Oh, oh, quite. That's that's quite true. Um, in fact, uh, someone someone <laughs> in a meeting uh, recently, and there just happened to be two other guidance alums uh, in this meeting, and someone made the comment that, who was not one of the guidance alums said, "Gosh, you know, you can't sling a cat in the Silicon Valley and not hit a person that didn't work at guidance." And it's actually true. Um, we we were, and part of the reason I think is that we the guidance had a very high retention rate, and so when we went there, we stayed there for a long time. Um, and so a lot of people back then used to call us sort of the, the guidance was guiding university, sort of the University of Medical Devices. And so people that went there and stayed there for a while, um, we sort of tended to now be this, this very distinct sort of uh, almost like a graduating class, right, of people that uh, once guidance was acquired and broken up um, have kind of just stayed here and propagated throughout other companies. And so for sure, I was very privileged to work with incredibly talented and smart people. There must be at least five, five or six of your colleagues that went on 
to start companies and run companies even more, maybe. It's, that's, that's right. That's right. It's interesting how there are these sort of founder companies or these sort of companies that have that effect. In biotech, the sort of the classic example is this company called Baxter, you know, the, you know, big company in the Midwest, Baxter, where there's actually a book, by, I think a hard business school person wrote it called The Baxter Boys, about how all these sort of biotech, you know, in Boston, everywhere else, all of the people who became CEOs there at one point were general managers at, at Baxter. And that was sort of really important. Similarly, and a lot of the digital health folks seem to have been at Hippocrates. That sort of might be almost a more contemporary <laughs> example. Um, no, I wrote about that one. It was yeah. sort of about about the folks at Hippocrates. Um, so after you were at you were Guiden, it was acquired. And then eventually you got a call um, from uh, from Kleiner Perkins. Tell us, uh, tell us about that and how that led to your next role. Yeah, so Guidant uh, was acquired in 2006, and my division of Guidant was immediately sold by Boston Scientific that acquired Guidant um, to Abbott. And so Abbott Vascular was in the process of sort of taking over the location in Santa Clara. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things where I sort of felt like this is one of those, for- there's one of those clear forks in the road. Like, if I'm going to go to a small company, like, this is the time to do it. Now, in retrospect, I must remind everybody that we didn't know that the recession was about to happen. Right? This is 2006, and none of us were prescient or able to see what was going to happen. None of you with those fancy PhDs. Huh? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so, you know, a lot of us went to, to felt that was an opportunity to go to startup companies, and myself included. And so David Levison, who had been um, incubating uh, what would become CardioDX at Kleiner Perkins, uh, called me and, and got to me really through Dana Mead, because Dana Mead had been the divisional head of my division of guidance and then had gone to Kleiner Perkins to be a partner and kind of begin their medical device right, practice, right? right? And so, again, guidance connection. Um, and so Dana had uh, sort of introduced me to David Levison while he was being incubated as an ER at Kleiner to create CardioDX. And um, they said, hey, we were really interested in talking to you about coming in and joining us. And, and I said, oh, that sounds fascinating. And I actually am personally fascinated with genomics and really was uh, looking for a way, frankly, to become a part of that whole, of that whole movement in healthcare. But I said, uh, there's only one problem. I am not a PhD in molecular biology. Like, that's not, that's not what I do. And so I don't really know how I can be a part of this company. And they said, oh, no, no, we don't want you to do R&D. We have, we have actual real molecular biologists that can do that. Um, you want you to do something much more important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we want, you to, we want you to think about um, how to define the product spec and how to get it paid for. And I was like, oh, wow, you want me to do, like, marketing and reimbursement? And they said, yeah. And I said, you do realize I've never marketed, launched, or gotten anything reimbursed. And um, they were like, yeah, we understand that. But um, what they really cared about, and in retrospect, I I totally now get what they were doing, um, is they really wanted somebody in that role who understood where cardiovascular devices and therapeutics were headed in arrhythmia, in interventional cardiology and vascular disease, in um, cardiac medicine, right, and overall understanding what the diagnostic problems were going to be by understanding first what therapeutic uh, both device and, and drugs uh, market look like. And they said, well, that's what we, who we're really looking for, somebody who understands that. I said, well, I understand that. And, and the reason that I understood that is because at Guidant, at the time of the acquisition, I was running um, 
I was a director of a team called New Ventures inside the vascular business. And so we were, uh, and Guidant was the only medical device company that was exclusively focused on cardiovascular. So if any of us knew cardiovascular, boy, you can bet all the Guidant people did, right? And in my job as, as a director of New Ventures, I was sort of looking in a 10-year time horizon about what Guidant was needing to do to position itself to be competitive in cardiovascular medicine, um, you know, over, over the next decade. And so, you know, that's what they wanted um, is somebody around the table to think that way. And, you know, I think that I was pretty quickly convinced that, that they were right, that that wasn't the right skill set. And I certainly um, had no idea how to do that job, but certainly was curious enough to find out and, and would throw myself completely into it. And, um, and, and that was how that happened in 2006. Wow. So it, that turned out to be a very exciting and almost decade-long ride. Isn't, isn't, that, uh, isn't that right? And uh, you really um, wound up uh, contributing profoundly to the development and growth of the company. And then um, a couple of years ago, you decided, okay, it's gotten to a certain point. You're ready for the, I think you described it elsewhere as the grand vacation, right? <laughs> it was supposed to be, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so what, what, what went wrong? <laughs> um, so what went wrong, you know, and also, you know, it, the, the reason that I left Cardi EDX when I did, and, um, and, and I, I think you, you guys know, when I, when I resigned, I actually didn't have another job. It wasn't that I was running to something else. It's that I really felt like um, it was the right time for me to step out of that particular company. Um, I had some personal stuff going on in the family that I needed to also deal with. And so there's just a number of factors that were, that were kind of lining up. I had extremely talented people in sales and marketing reimbursement that, that I knew uh, could scale from there. And so I just felt strongly that it was kind of the right time for me to transition out. And um, when I did that, uh, what I, I was imagining, oh, I'm going to take some time off. You know, I haven't ever had a really real vacation since I moved to California after grad school, which at that point was quite a long time ago. And I'm going to take some time off, quote unquote, like everyone says, right? And um, that did not last. I think that lasted two weeks. You failed fast at that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, failed, I failed really fast at that. And I had gotten a phone call from um, from Rowan Chapman when she was at GE Ventures. And, and I've known Rowan for a long time from when she was at Moore David Al, and Moore David Al had led a series B at Cardio DX. Um, and she said, you know, I, I really want to get some time with you on the phone. I'm thinking about doing something in digital health, and I want your I want your feedback. And I was like, sure, of course. So we set up time to talk, and she's 10 minutes into the conversation. She's telling me all about uh, what they're envisioning for what later became Evidation Health. And She's saying, so I wanted to talk to you because, you know, you've got this incredible network of people, you know, all the guidance alums and, you know, all the things that they're doing and they told two friends and that network has gotten bigger. Who should we get to run this company? Huh. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, tell me more. <laughs> tell me more about this idea. And, uh, and so she does. And so finally I stop her and I say, okay, spirit of full disclosure, um, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm transitioning out of CardioDX. Uh, it's not public yet. The board knows. Um, but I don't want to give you any names for this job because I think I might want that job. <laughs> so Deb, that's you know that's so. So I know I met you. I don't know exactly when and where I met you, but along the way <laughs> through the med tech world, you and I met. And I remember there was a time, particularly through the med tech women uh, group and the med tech vision conference that you've helped organize for the past six or so years, which is great. So if somebody out there doesn't know about it, they should they should look it up. Um, you know, and digital health was definitely not in the parlance, you know, I mean, that was kind of, I remember talking to you about it along the way, we were discussing programming and saying, you guys really should think about doing something digital health. And y'all looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? So 
what what was the epiphany that made you jump from uh, what the hell are you talking about to I really should save this job for myself at Evidation? Yeah. And by the way, I want to I want to take this quick moment to disclose that I'm a board member of Evidation. Uh, lucky me, actually, I got that as a side benefit of joining uh, GE Ventures. So just 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 to be fully disclosing there. Yeah. No. And we're uh, we're so excited to have you a part of this, Lisa. Um. So that's a really that's that's funny. I, I had not thought about that in a long time. You know, and I think. I, I think the light bulb for me was sort of going back to why I went to Cardio DX in the first place, which was, you know, I was I was really profoundly convinced that this that there are very few points in time, certainly in one's career, but frankly, even over the over the course of say a century of a sector, let's say, right, whether it's in energy and infrastructure, or whether it's in um, consumer goods, or whether it's in uh, in this case healthcare, there are very few points in time where there is this massively new influx of information. It could be in the form of data or it could be, you know, contextual information about what's going on in the markets or, or whatever it is. But there are just a few points in time where this massively new available sets of information or have the potential to transform the way that sector works. And I think the first time it happened in healthcare was, was genomics. I, I mean, I really think that was the first time where this massively new, you know, influx of information had, you know, has profoundly changed the way that we diagnose and treat people. Not ubiquitously, but certainly in certain pockets, profoundly. I mean, we have immunotherapy for cancer now. It's incredible, right? And I, and I began to think about why I went to CardioDX in the first place. And, and then I began, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that digital, the digital era of medicine is, is that next wave. And that to me, um, what digital is doing is it's providing us with a massively new uh, set of information um, that about what patients are doing, about what patients are um, you know, how they're doing with regard to outcomes in their real life, not just in a clinical trial. And that if we could tap into that information, that that would profoundly change the way that we diagnose, manage, and treat patients. And so that, that became very interesting to me. And so when Roland uh, at GE Ventures was talking about this idea of, hey, we're really interested in doing something in the definition of outcomes in digital health, I was like, huh, that starts to sound like what I really actually am interested in, which is, you know, this next wave of information, in this case digital, um, that can really change things. And so... I just was really attracted to that. But to your point, Lisa, for a long time, it was just kind of fragmented and vague to me. So that, I know we only have uh, several more minutes left, but I'm really interested in how, in, in what evidation does and how this, how you make uh, a bit, because what you're describing, I mean, obviously I couldn't resonate with, with more. I mean, uh, a lot of my own work with Denny Asiello in Boston and others have been around, you know, capturing this sort of broad amount of, of information with the idea that there has to be so much value in it. But how have you gone about succeeding Successfully turning this into a business. What's what's the sort of the business case for this? Sure. So um, let's take let's take uh, health plans and let's take pharma and biotech as examples of you know very important buyers of healthcare, right? And and in the case of health plans, they're payers of healthcare too, but they are also buyers. They are paying for technologies to be implemented into their member populations. If you're a buyer of healthcare or a seller of healthcare you fundamentally need to understand what's working and what's not working in the population that's of business interest to you. If you're a health plan, it's your members, right? If you're a provider system, it's the patients that are coming in and out of your clinics every day or your OR every day. And if you're a pharma or biotech company, it's the people that are on label for your drug or maybe taking your therapeutic. Um, if we can all agree that regardless of what happens to ACA, 
that we are in a world now of value-based healthcare, and it's going to be a long arc on this because we've got to figure out how to adjudicate that value. I think we can also agree that the value itself is going to be based on outcomes and that those outcomes can't be just clinical trial outcomes. We've had that for 50 years of evidence-based medicine. But those outcomes have to be from the real-life post-launch setting of everyday lives of patients. And that, that is what ties everything that evidation does together. And so we're really quantifying outcomes in populations using technology where those outcomes are of interest to key business questions for the people that are buying and selling products in healthcare. And people are really, you know, the challenge for a lot of this this, this sort of value-based care has been when people are really ready to pay for it as, 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 as sort of a robust business model versus sort of an aspirational, well, it'll be exciting to get to that point. Are you finding enough customers who are interested enough in value, essentially defining value in this way, they, that they're paying you to, to assess that? Yeah, absolutely. Because um, if, if we can, it, you know, it's not like value-based care is all of a sudden going to turn on like a light bulb one day. It's not binary, right? We have to work from where we are right now towards an ecosystem sometime in the future where everything is based on value. Along that trajectory are pockets of understanding that have to be developed um, about what's working today and what's not working today. And that's sort of where we are right now, right? I mean, yes, you've got, you've got uh, specialty pharma contracts, certainly for some of the new drug classes like PCSK9 inhibitors are a really good example, where, yeah, you've already got outcomes-based contracts being written. Um, but look more broadly, um, you know, about how, and imagine how those kinds of contracts will be one day written. In order for them to be written such that both sides have an idea of what's actually working or not, and when, you, when things are working, you pay for them, and when they're not working, you pay less for them, or you pay nothing for them. We have to start from right now and understand what are the baseline kinds of outcomes on existing therapeutics in, in the existing day-to-day life of patients. And I think the only way to do that uh, today is because of the ubiquity of technology that we're all walking around with in our pockets, in our purses, in our, in, in our hands, right? And so it's mobile, it's IoT, and it's connected. But I think it. one of the things that is really interesting about your company, among other things, is that you have a ca- effectively a captive population? They're not all yours, but they're, you know, willing to share data with you, and it's a million and a quarter, you know, people plus and growing, and so you can deploy rapid fire studies and registries and and analyses. And I think that's a really interesting differentiator. Yeah, I mean, essentially, we 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 believe that. Um, in order for, again, the sort of value-based, outcomes-based model of healthcare to become true, you have to enable people where they are in their lives to participate in the process. And in order to do that, you've got to have them connected to some kind of uh, technology that allows data to flow freely um, so that you can see what's going on. And so, uh, yeah, you're right, Lisa. Right now, today, I think we have somewhere between 1.2 and 1.3 million. Um, I call them sort of free rangers, <laughs> free range patients uh, in the U.S., um, just like you or me sitting here uh, talking. Uh, it could be anybody in their car or, or in their house or wherever they are. The point is we're, we're quantifying outcomes not necessarily inside clinic walls like we've done for 50 years. We're quantifying outcomes in daily lives. And the ability to quantify lives um, and quantify daily life um, is part and parcel to how value-based healthcare is going to become real. So um, I, imagine, I imagine now coming full circle that there's, you know, one out of every 11 people sitting at that Georgia Tech game, uh, you know, tapping away at their <laughs> at their iPhone, uh, sending data over to Evidation. So 
Deb, this has been great. We've really enjoyed talking to you as always and excited to have this opportunity to have you on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, you are two of my favorite people and um, I just oh. want to say thanks for giving me the chance to participate. You guys are awesome. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, take care, you guys. Deb Kilpatrick is CEO of Evidation Health and joined us today from Los Altos, California. That was a pretty interesting show. I mean, I obviously know the business, but I mean, I think the, the path she took there is so interesting, particularly since so many medical device people couldn't give a damn about digital health or the technology side of things until very recently. And then many of them have all of a sudden got a lot of religion about it. And it's great. It's really interesting. I mean, it seems like there's this real pattern recognition that's taking place. And hopefully with all of these people and the data, the next real question is how effectively is this really translatable into impact? Well, we're delighted to uh, to have the opportunity to talk to, to Deborah today. And in the future, if you'd like to see more of David's work, you can follow his writing at Forbes. That's right. And if you uh, want to uh, read more of the wonderful Lisa Soonan, you can follow her at VentureValkyrie.com as well as on the Timmerman Report. I would also remind you to uh, rate and review us on iTunes. It really, really helps. We're grateful to our sponsor, DNA Nexus, the secure and compliant cloud platform that enables enterprise users to analyze, collaborate around, and integrate massive amounts of genetic and other health data. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in scenic Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Peace out. Take care. Mm-hmm.